good teams are made during the season, good players are made in the off season. Unfortunately, part of it is my generation that created that, that, that you know, everybody's important, everybody gets a trophy. And, you know, I used to tell my players, it's like, you're unique, but you're not special. You all have mm. unique talents and things like that, but you're not, you're not special, I'm sorry. You know, and I'm not gonna treat all of you the same way. I mean, there are, you have certain talents. And I, I may tell my point guard, you know, when I was coaching basketball, I don't want you to shoot. I just want you to distribute the ball, you know, to give it to the people that can't shoot because you're not a good shooter. I spent my first nego practice negotiation talking to the hostage. That's the hard part about this. You may want to be empathetic. They may just be pissed off. There's never been another human being in the history of the world that's like you, and there never will be another human being in the history of the world like you. Welcome to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. The podcast where we highlight stories of dads on the other side of divorce. To inspire and give strength to dads going through it. I'm Ben. And I'm Yoel. Welcome back to the Two Dad to Quit podcast. You can find us on twodadtoquit.com, Two Dad to Quit on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We all now have a YouTube Clips channel. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. If you have a story that you feel can help other people, please reach out to us, and we want to have you on and share your story. This week, we are sitting down with Terry Tucker. Terry lives in Denver, Colorado, and he is a former police officer and SWAT hostage negotiator with the Cincinnati Police Department. Terry has been married for 30 years and has one child, a daughter who is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy and is a officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. She has played mm -hmm. Division I basketball at the academy. Terry has been battling a rare form of cancer for the past 11 years, which has seen him have his foot amputated in 2018 and his leg was amputated in 2020, and he is currently being treated for tumors in his lungs. Terry is also the oldest of three boys, he and his brothers all played college sports, and his middle brother was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA, and his youngest brother coached Michael Jordan's two sons in high school. Terry is also the author of Sustainable Excellence, 10 Principles to Leading Your Uncommon and Extraordinary Life. Terry believes everyone is born to lead an uncommon and extraordinary life, and that has nothing to do with where you work how much money you make, and where you live. So Terry, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. Um, and thank you for your service and everything that you've done, you know, over those years. Uh, and even, you know, your daughter contributing uh, to protect the, the space, which I'd love to get to in, at some point. You know, I always wanted to be an astronaut. And that, <laughs> that to me is, is just up there. So uh, it's actually really, really cool. Well, Ben, you all, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to talking with you both today. Fantastic. Awesome. So I'd like to go like way back. Uh, so I guess you grew up, you were, you uh, very into sports, very active. Um, were you also like a leader among your peers? Was that something natural that came to you? I, I don't know if it was something that came naturally. I was, you know, I was six foot five when I was 13 years old. So, yeah, you know, how kids are in middle school. They they tend to to reach out and, and make fun of things that they don't understand or things that are different. So I got teased pretty mercilessly. I had, you know, I had these great big ears. My head had not caught up with my ears. I had a size 13 shoe. And so I got teased a lot. And I, and I put that, you know, you know that, 
easing into playing sports to practicing basketball, which is, you know, one of those sports that you can, you can play by yourself. You really, all you need is a hoop and a ball. You don't need other people, you know, to do that. So that's, I, I, I owe a lot of getting good at basketball to being teased when I was young. <laughs> you're, you're actually not the only one that uh, we've had on the podcast that had that same experience. Um, right. It's actually, I don't, I, it's the reason I don't like basketball is because it's not a team. To me, it's, it's a team sport, but not really a team sport where they're like one person can carry that game. Um, and I, that's the part I don't like about it. Uh, but any other sport, you know, to me, you know, football, if some guy is out of position, the whole play is gone. Um, yeah. So, well, I used to say that, you know, to my team, it's like, you know, good teams are made during the season. Good players are made in the off season you know, in yeah. basketball. So you can get good at basketball in the off season, but awful hard to do that, as you say, in a team concept during the season. Hmm. Yeah. And when you, uh, so when you were in high school and, and brought into the you know NCAA, was that where you, was that always your focus to play professional uh, college and maybe further? I, it was, I, I unfortunately had three knee surgeries in high school. So I was actually pretty lucky just to be able to play division one college basketball. Um, I, I didn't, there's, I had another surgery when I was in college. So I had four total. I knew there was no way I was going to be able to play professionally beyond that. So I just kind of soaked it all up and enjoyed, you know, playing, uh, you know, you talked about my brother coaching my, Michael Jordan's sons. I got to play against him. My it was wow. his freshman year at North Carolina. Oh, it was God. my senior year. So pretty wow, lucky. Pretty cool. Wow. Um, and so, uh, so one brother went into to sports and athletics. Did the other ones go to professional careers, or everybody went NCAA and then veered off into whatever life threw at them. Yeah, I, my youngest brother was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame. And then you mentioned my middle brother who was drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA. He was actually the last person cut during tryouts. So he never okay. actually, you know, got to spend time with the team. But, you know, I mean, sports was what we did. It was, you know, our, it was what our parents were about. I mean, my, my mom and dad used to do what I mm -hmm. called divide and conquer parenting where you know i have a game on a certain night at a certain time and my brother would have a practice at the exact same time so okay dad's going to my game and mom's going you know with my youngest brother to to my brother's practice and 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 life revolved around sports for us and and my parents taught us the value of family you know of loving for each other of caring for each other of supporting each other and all that so it, it was it was set i think very early on in our lives the, the value and the importance of family in your life. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, the, the correlation between family and sports and teams um, also is, is uncanny. Um, I feel like, you know, like we were reading, we get these emails about uh, help a, help an help a writer out. And yeah. so they yeah, ask questions. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they ask questions. So like, what are the questions or we're just looking for like dad or divorce or whatever. And there was one question for Father's Day, like, what is one thing you wish you taught your kids? And, you know, for me, I, I think I messed up by not getting them involved, forcing them into sports. Uh, you know, here, it's a lot of after school activities, but it's more like gymnastics or ballet or karate. Like they're very singular and not very sports related. Like when I grew up, I was involved with every, on, off, you know, every season I was involved in a sport. 
you know, and the things I learned from those activities, you know, never giving up or it's okay to fail or, you know, you, you can try and try and get better every day and work on it. Like you said, in the off season and come back, you know, and be the best player, you know, all of those things I think are, are missing in, in this world where kids are just, you know, sitting on their games, you know, they're, they're playing and they're playing, you know, my son, he plays video games, but he's on like speakerphone with his friends and they're coordinating and they're working together. But to me, it's not, it's missing the reality of it, I guess. You know, like if, you know, you lose the game, you press restart. But if you're playing that championship game and you lose, like you need to actually like deal with it and understand that you need to work harder the next time. You know, and I feel like that is missing somewhere. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I, I think, unfortunately, part of it is my generation that created that, 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 you know, everybody's important, everybody gets a trophy. And, you know, I used to tell my players, it's like, you're unique, but you're not special. You all have mm. unique talents and things like that. But you're not, you're not special. I'm sorry, you know, and I'm not going to treat all of you the same way. I mean, there are, you have certain talents. And I, I may tell my point guard, you know, when I was coaching basketball, I don't want you to shoot. I just want you to distribute the ball, you know, to give it to the people that can't shoot because you're not a good shooter. And, mm. and you know, people are like, well, I should be able to do what everybody else is. No, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works on a team in business or medicine or law. You know, I mean, there are certain people that are specialists in, in certain areas. And those are the people that carry the ball during that time. And, you know, this thing of, you know, everybody gets a trophy. I, I remember our daughter was in a YMCA league, you know, just to kind of expose her, expose her to sports and to, to basketball. And it was, you know, here are kind of the rules. Here's how the game's played and things like that. And afterwards, the last game, it was like, okay, everybody sit down. Everybody gets a trophy. And my, my wife will tell you the story. She was like, well, trophy? Yeah, you didn't win anything. You know, I mean, you don't <laughs> a trophy in life to show up. You know, yeah. it's like, no, where that trophy's going in the garbage. Sorry, you, you got to earn, you know, recognition. You've got to earn awards and that. And and I think that's one thing we, certainly one of the things we taught our daughter. That's great. That, that's actually, um, you know, I, I agree with both of you. And, you know, I'm fortunate my son is in a soccer league. He's 11 years old, my, my younger son. And exactly that. So they give out a trophy to, I don't know how they evaluate it, but they give it out based on merit, at least what looks to be merit. My son has not gotten one yet. And I see it really motivates him. Like he's been improving dramatically every week and he's really motivated to get that trophy. And I'm grateful they're not just giving it out just for participating. Like he, they, they really want the kids to really be motivated to work for it. So I, I agree with both of you. And uh, and Ben's right. It's really, for my son, I was fortunate to, you know, uh, together with my ex-wife um, to find this soccer league for him. And he was really thriving in it. He really, really enjoys that team camaraderie, that aspect of it. So, yeah. Yeah, and I know I think that's a good point. You know, you learn so much from being part of a team. And and for me, it was sports. I think it could be whatever team you're on that, you know, you you learn how how to cooperate with people. You you learn that you don't always win. You learn how to lose. You learn how to be a good teammate. You mm. learn how to do all these things. And I think that was one of the biggest things, or one of the biggest things I learned from playing team sports was the importance of being part of something that's bigger than yourself. Mm. You know, you realize on a team that if you don't do your job, mm -hmm. not only do you let yourself down, but you let your teammates down, your coaches down, your fans down, your parents down, et cetera. And if you think about it, the biggest team game that we all play is this game of life. <laughs> well said. Yeah, I was actually listening to a, an interview with uh, Mark Zuckerberg this week, 
and he was talking about how he just started doing uh working on a Brazilian jiu-jitsu and he was saying like to him when he's working on a project at work it's like six months two years ten years and when you're dealing with jiu-jitsu and you're one-on-one and you're grappling with somebody on the mat it's like if you mess up in that three seconds you're gonna get your head smashed in and he's like it's a totally different part of my brain and i need to exercise it to and it's making me a better decision maker and a better hard worker and i started talking to my son about it who i've been like trying to get him to join some sort of sports or something with other people besides his computer and he's like well why do you want to do it and i was like because i think i heard mark zuckerberg say it which was good uh and then i said you know it's it's these decisions that you have to make and if you don't make them in the second you're going to get hurt and he also said mark when you start you're having like the smallest guy come and grapple with you and he's killing you from day one and so you're automatically every day you're learning humility and patience and all these things and we've had a ton of guests on that have been involved with jujitsu um and i started my son probably five years ago and he did it and then they moved the location and it wasn't uh, convenient um but now you know that's kind of my next motivation is to try to get him back in to try it out because uh i just think the benefits that i've been hearing are are so great even though it's not a team thing but it's it's like one-on-one combat and you can tell us all about that um but you know just fighting against each other and making each other better and improving um and helping each other is is where i wanted to get get to but i I, you make a good point I, i think that's you know the people you surround yourself with make you hopefully better. You know, if you surround yourself with people that are that are better than you, that are smarter than you, that have better character than you, then they're going to raise you up. They're going to make you a person who's smarter, who's better, who have, has better character versus the people, you know, so many people surround themselves with what I like to call energy suckers. I mean, they just, they just mm. take from you. You know, it's always about them. There's always drama surrounding them and things like that. And I always encourage those people like, as much as you can. And I realize sometimes those people are family and you you can't get them out of your <laughs> life, but as much as you can try to try to distance yourself from those people and surround yourself that make you, that make you better. Again, you know, what did our parents t- taught us, you know, about family, what, what the importance of family was and what, family taught you and was supposed to be, we learned that. And and I think my brothers and I have incorporated that in our lives as parents, as we raise our children in that. So I, I've, I've always done that. My wife and I have always done that with our daughter to, you know, get people around you that are better. If you're the smartest person in the room, you need to find a, a different room. Mm. Yeah. And so you were, you were playing basketball in college and some, at some point you realized that you weren't going to go pro. So what did you major in or when did you decide to be, to join the, the, the police force? Um, how did that transition, you know, mentally, you know, coming to terms with, you know, the dream wasn't going to happen. So you need to make a, a new dream. How did that? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it was a new purpose. And, and, you know, I think for me, um, I majored in business and I'll be honest with you. I majored in business because my dad told me to, I, I had no idea. As a, <laughs> honestly, as an 18 year old kid, 17 year old kid. Right, like, what do we know? Yeah. We don't know anything. And you know, yeah. it's like, here, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? Play basketball? Well, that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> you know, what's, what's next. And my grandfather had been a Chicago police officer 
from 1924 mm-hmm. to 1954 and was actually shot in the line of duty with his own uh, gun. And when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was absolutely not. You're going to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a great job, get married, have 2.4 kids and live happily ever after. And a dog. Yeah, and a dog. There you go. And But that's what my dad wanted me to do. It's not what I felt my purpose was. So when I graduated from college, my dad and my grandmother were both dying of cancer. So I had a choice. I could have said, sorry, dad, you know, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and go into law enforcement or out of love and respect for you, I will do what you want me to do. So understanding the backstory, my resume makes a little bit more sense. My first two jobs were, first one was in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International, the hamburger chain in their marketing department. And then I became a hospital administrator and I sort of joked that I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams and became a 37-year-old rookie police officer. And I'll tell you this oh. much, I, I took a whole lot more Tylenol in the police academy than my younger counterparts. So, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Nice. That's amazing. A, were you, were you married by like then that. already? When, when you, sorry, Ben. Were you, were you married already when you made that career transition after your father passed away? I, I was. I, I, we were actually, my wife and I got married and we moved to Santa Barbara, California. And, you know, it just so happened there was a circular that came in the mail that was from Santa Barbara City College. And I was, I never looked at these things, but, you know, one day at lunch, I was just kind of flipping through it. And there was a class that if you took the class, you could apply to be a reserve police officer with any agency within the state of California. So you can imagine how that conversation went at dinner. You know, my wife had married me when I was a suit and tie eight to five Monday. Through right. Friday. That's what I was curious. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Hospital administrator. I said, Hun, you know, I'd like to do this. What do you think? And, and she was incredibly supportive. Yeah, go take the class. See what happened. Took the class, got on with the Santa Barbara City Police Department. And so I would work all week at my regular job. I was a customer service manager for an academic publishing company. And I come home Friday night, put on my uniform, go out and work all night and come home Saturday morning. And my wife would say, you would be exhausted, but you had this incredible grin on your face. Mm-hmm. And she said, I knew that that's what you were supposed to do. I knew that's what you wanted to do. And when our daughter was born, we moved to Cincinnati, Ohio. And and I said, look, I want to do this full time. And she was very supportive of me for that. Amazing. And how long were you on the force before you, I guess, joined SWAT was first or negotiators? So I, the uh, the negotiators are part of the SWAT team. SWAT is usually divided up into two groups. One of the are the tactical teams. Those are the men and women with all the toys and stuff like that. And we used to joke (laughs) with them that, you know, if we did our job as negotiators, they didn't get to use all their toys. So sometimes they weren't real happy with that. But um, yeah, so, and, you know, so you've got tactical and you've got negotiators and there was an opening for a negotiator. And, you know, SWAT is usually the best officers with the best training and the best equipment. Mm -hmm. And I've always wanted to be part of the best. And so I, I put in for it. I, I was in my 40s at the time. And, you know, and you had to run a mile and a half. You had to do all these push-ups and sit-ups and meet with the psychologist and take all these psychological exams. And then you met with the team. And it was kind of an all or nothing thing. If, if one member on the team said, no, we don't want Terry on the team, then you didn't get on. So right. everybody had to be in agreement. And they all fortunately were in my case. And I got on the team and I did that for almost four years. I was a negotiator. Wow. I want to ask you about stories. I just don't know if you can share any. I, I can share a couple with you. Um, okay, sure. 
So this one is a funny one. This is a, an atypical one. Almost never went like this. Um, I happen to be working this particular night. Uh, we were not a full-time SWAT team. And again, I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but we, we had pagers. So, you know, when the pager went off, it told us where to go. I sold pagers in high school. So I, even I go back to the pager time. <laughs> like, oh, there you go. See, I mean, it, it worked perfect. So, you know, yeah. pager goes off. I get to the scene. I, I was, I was, like I said, a sergeant. So I was already in a marked car, you know, got, got there. And I talked to the uniform officers like, what's the deal? He's drunk. He's barricaded himself in the house with his wife and a gun. I'm like, okay, do you have him on the phone? Yes, we do. All right, let me talk to him. So we we started talking. And usually it would be hours into a negotiation before you would start to talk about the person coming out or how the person was going to come out. But I just had a feeling, I had a gut feeling. So I said to him, what would it take for you to come out right now? And there was this long pause. And he said, give me a beer. I was like, <laughs> what? What? Give me a beer. I said, well, if I gave you a beer, do I have your word that you would let your wife go and you would come out? He said, do I have your word I could drink it? I said, yeah, you have my word. He said, then I'll let my wife go and I'll come out. I said, so I gave $5 to one of the officers. He said, get out of the store, buy a beer. Tactical team put it on the front porch. And I called him back and I said, your beer is on the front porch, but you don't get it until your wife comes out and you come out with your hands up. He's like, do I still have your word that I could drink it? I said, yes, you still have my word. All of a sudden, the front door flies open. Here comes his wife with her hands up. And then she he comes out with his hands up. We handcuff him, let him drink his beer, and off to jail he went. So, I mean, wow. that was that was an atypical one. It was kind of funny. <laughs> it was over pretty quickly. This next story was it, it, it's, it's sort of tragic, but it, it kind of, I think, illustrates really, you know, when it's your time, it's your time. But when it's not your time, it's not your time either. This was a, a man who wanted to commit suicide. And this started probably at eight o'clock at night and he slit his wrists and that didn't work. And then he thought for some reason, turning the gas on his oven and sticking his head in the oven would kill him. Well, that, well, that didn't work either. And so he called a relative and the relative was smart enough to call the, call us. And, and so we get there, it's probably three, four o'clock in the morning now. And I'm talking to him and he's got a gun now. And he finally says, you know, I, I just want to come out. I'm tired. I'm like, great. Just put the gun down, bring the phone with you, come out. I said, and I'll come down to the scene after you get secured and, and we'll talk face to face. He's like, yeah, I'd really like that. I said, but don't hang up the phone. So what's he do? Hangs up the phone. But that's mm -hmm. more conditioned when a conversation's over to hang up a phone. Mm -hmm. And about 20 seconds later, one of the tactical officers comes on the radio and says, we heard a gunshot. And I thought, you did it. He did. Shot himself in the head. But he shot mm -hmm. himself at such an angle that the bullet went in on the side of his temple here, underneath his skin, went around his scalp and came wow. out the other side. Never Ooh, penetrated really. his skull, never got to his brain. So that's three times he tried to commit suicide. And three times I think God was like, yeah, not, not your time right now. Not now. Wow. 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 Uh, <laughs> I actually had, it's not a hostage negotiation, but I, I work also in kind of customer service. <laughs> I had a customer that, um, just going back and forth with our customer service and they called me in to help. And finally the first, I, I, I was just explaining the technology and finally I just said, well, how can we resolve this? How can I help you? You know, what would you like us to do? And they were like, well, you can give everything for free or give me a discount. And I was like, okay, I can't give it to you for free, but I can give you a 10% discount. And that was the end after like 40 minutes. <laughs> so I, I feel you. 
<laughs> you, you do, and, and that's you know that's one thing we did as negotiators. We 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 did what they call tactical empathy. In other words, I want to understand where you're coming from, barricaded person, you know, hostage taker, whatever. Not necessarily agree, but I want to understand. You know, you may have just murdered two people, and I'm, I'm not going to agree with that. But help me to understand why it happened and get that out. And the other thing we used to do is we would use how and what questions, Ben, kind of like what you just said, you know, how can we resolve this? We stayed away from why questions mm -hmm. because they sound accusatory. Well, Ben, why did you do that? Oh, wait a minute. Is he accusing me of something? So how and what questions, unbeknownst to the person we were talking to, got them engaged to help us get them out safely? You know, how are we going to resolve this? Oh, mm -hmm. now all of a sudden they're engaged, they're involved in how they're going to come out. So things like that. It, it was just, it was a big learning curve for me. You know, a lot of, I remember my, we, we used to practice scenario-based training. And so, you know, scenario, it was just somebody behind a door and a hostage and the hostage is screaming the whole time. I spent my first nego practice negotiation talking to the hostage, spent the whole time talking to the hostage. And they're like, you realize the hostage has nothing to do with this. It's the hostage taker. And I'm like, I said, I got a lot to learn here. So, wow. <laughs> But, you know, Terry, I'm, I'm curious, is this kind of ties into uh, your motivational work? And you mentioned the idea of empathy and, and how you use that in your negotiation. How would you suggest to some, let's say you have two people, particularly, you know, a lot of our audience, right, is, is, is uh, you know, people that are going through divorce, have gone through divorce. So you have situations where people have to deal with their ex-spouses. And a lot of times one person may feel like he or she has that empathy and the other person on the other side doesn't, and it can be very frustrating. Like, how do you get through to that other person? So uh, do you have any sort of advice or tips or, you know, any anything you can share with our audience about, you know, finding a way to either find that empathy in somebody else or accessing it in yourself to bring the best out of the communication with the other person? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I would stay say I would stay, say to stay single, but that, I understand that's not, that's not an option here. <laughs> Um, well, Ben and I have that checked off as, as of today. There you go. <laughs> the, the wild card in all this is the emotion. And, you know, and, and that's where, I, I mean, I know all this stuff about negotiating, but I'll be honest with you, a lot of times with our daughter, it went right out the window. It's like, now I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm the parent now and I'm putting my foot down and I, you know, <laughs> you're an idiot. What, you know all this stuff. Why are you doing this? And, and that's the hard part about this. You may want to be empathetic, they may just be pissed off. Mm. And, you know, that that was one thing that we, that was why negotiating was so exhausting. Because, for example, if, if one of, you know, we're talking and they're like, you know, if you, they would say something, we would label the emotion and say it back to them. But if you miss the emotion, you know, if they were, they were enraged with their mother and you said, well, you, you seem you're, you're a little upset with your mom. Oh, oh, upset. Are you kidding? You know, I mean, you, you had to label the emotion. So you kind of had to get down in the weeds with these people. You had to get down in the mud and and be where they were emotionally, which is why what we did was so exhausting, especially over number of hours and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So I, I guess I would say, you know, understand the emotion, understand, the, you know, the, the emotion that's coming from them and, and try to parrot that back to them. You know, hey, honey, I, I know you're I know you're really pissed at me for what I did, or I know you're really pissed at the fact that we're not together or whatever that, but can we work together? So identify the emotion. Yeah, I get that you're mad. I get that you're ticked off at me. Identify that. 
because it, it, it puts it out in the open. It's not like, oh, I want to be empathetic, but you're pissed. Identify the fact that he or she is pissed and then say, okay, but can we work together for, you know, Johnny's sake or Sally's sake or whatever it is? And, and that, because you've, you've now recognized or at least given them the out that, yeah, he gets I'm ticked off about this. And now maybe, okay, he, he gets it. Now maybe we can work together. I, I don't know if that helps, but yeah, that no, would be that's, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, the empathy, I want to, I want to, are you an empathetic person by nature? Like, I know that, you know, like I, I grew so. up with a mother, I grew up with a mother who said like, when she heard on the news that someone got, you know, hurt, she felt it. So I, I can empathize. I'm not that bad, but like, I feel, you know, like I'm helping a few people in, in some pretty precarious situations and they're like, you don't know what I'm feeling. And you know, my response is, I don't know what you're feeling, but I can feel what you're feeling. Uh, so are you an empathetic person by nature or is that something you had to learn on the in the process? I, I mean, I think I am an empathetic person. I, I you know, it, it's all how you, you know, and it's it wasn't a using thing. We, we weren't using people to try, you know, get people out safely. Although to be honest with you, we would if 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 we could, you know, if it was a life and death situation. But it it was it was it was trying to it was trying to make a connection. The, the overarching, uh, I guess, part of being a negotiator was trust. Is trying to get an individual you've never met before who's probably having the worst day of their life if they're talking to me to trust you. And you know, a lot of that is you know, asking those open-ended questions, getting them to talk. A lot of that was, um, well, it's called mirroring or parroting. So you would say something and then we would just say the last three words or whatever the important phrase or words that you use, we just say it back to you. And then we would shut up. And part of it was, I, I, I think empathy was important, but I think the biggest thing was curiosity. Hmm. What 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 got us to this point right now? Oh, he's interested. Okay, you know, and a lot of it. What you know, we would start out. Hey, I'm Terry. What what would you like me to call you? It wasn't you know. I'm with the police department. I'm on the SWAT team. I'm a negotiator. I'm oh nothing. It was hi. I'm Terry. What, what would you like me to call you? Or what's your name? Well, I don't want to give me my name. Well, what do you want me to call you? So so you're 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 trying to humanize this as much as you possibly can, so that. And, and, and you realize that that's another human being. And that was one thing about being a police officer. You know, I may pull you over for running a stop sign or for speeding and give you a ticket. For you, it's the most frightening thing that happened to you all year. For me, it's the third traffic stop of the night. So understanding how our interaction with, with the public, so to speak, happens. And then realizing, like I said, if you're talking to me and you're surrounded by the, you know, my, my colleagues, yeah, you're probably having the worst day of your life. And how do we, how do we get trust? We never lied to people. People would say to us, I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say, well, I'm sorry, but when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something more positive. And the reason we did that is because there was a very good chance that a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, we were going to be back negotiating with that same person again. Wow, really? Yeah. I mean, the, the problem, the underlying problem didn't go away, 
you know, they were still fighting with their mother, which was why they did what they did or whatever it was. So, the, the you know, we would be like, okay, we're not going to lie to you. So three years from now, you can't say, well, I, Tucker, I'm not talking to you because you lied to me. Right. You know, so we, we never lied to people. We always told them the truth. And sometimes, you know, that truth was a little hard to swallow, but we always tried to deflect it into something more positive. Hmm. And that, so you retired from SWAT? Is that... Was that the end of? I actually left the police department because my wife lost her job in Cincinnati and she was the primary breadwinner. And, you know, we moved to Houston, Texas. And so she had supported me during my law enforcement career. So this was an opportunity for me to support her in her career. And, you know, there were a lot of officers that I, not a lot, but there were enough officers that I saw that their identity was tied to what they did, you know, to the gun, the badge, the authority that they had, and they couldn't, they couldn't retire. I mean, these are people that have been on 35, 40, 45 years. And it's like, no, you deserve to retire. You deserve to enjoy this, but they couldn't do it because for some reason, you know, if I'm not doing this every day, then I'm not, my identity is, is somehow affected by this. But for me, it was like, I, I'll find something else to do. I mean, it was, I loved what I did. It was, it was a purpose but it, it wasn't who I was. Wow. I love that. Ben and I have talked a lot about the whole idea of identity. So uh, really happy to hear you say that. So interesting. Amazing. Okay. So you're, you're, I want to get into this space force air force Academy uh, a little bit. So the, the air force uh, Academy is where? Uh, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Okay. So, and that's college or that's high school. What, how does College. Okay, got it. So after high school, Air Force Academy. Right. Did she always want to be in the Air Force? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> not, not at all. Uh, yeah, I had gone to a military school uh, in South Carolina. Um, I, I, our daughter was always disciplined, but I, I don't think she had any interest. But it was an opportunity to play basketball at a level that, you know, Division One basketball was the highest level. And yep. they were the only Division One school that were were really interested in her. So, you know, I remember we went on a visit and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, she was originally going to go to a small school in New York. And we went to the academy. And now, now she'll tell you I forced her into this. We, we have a running joke with this. <laughs> I, 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 I did not. You know, I was like, it's your decision. Wherever you, you're going to be happy. But but what do you want to do? Again, you know, thinking back to my own college experience, I, I didn't know, you know, what, what are your interests in? And, and, you know, if you go to any of the service academies, the Naval Academy, West Point, which is the, the Army and, or, or the Air Force Academy, I, I don't care what you major in, you're pretty much going to get an engineering degree of, of some form. You know, you're going to take a lot of engineering classes. And our daughter was not... Um, in, in grade school, she had been diagnosed with uh, dyslexia, uh, an anxiety disorder, and an attention disorder. Mm. And so we got her with a learning specialist. And she just learns differently. You know, I remember I remember growing up having the radio on, you know, studying for a test. And my mom's like, turn that radio off. Yeah, yes, ma'am. <laughs> you know, and, and, but our daughter learns with music. She learns with color. She she learns differently. And she got special accommodations in high school to take tests, you know, in a in a quiet room with not, you know, or nobody around and stuff. The Air Force Academy is like, yeah, we don't give you that. I mean, it, it's an all or nothing thing. 
And the fact that she survived that, the fact that she not only survived, but excelled and graduated was something that, you know, I, I can't tell you how proud my wife and I were of the fact that she took something that was a deficit and turned it into something that was positive and used that for her benefit to get this great education. And, and Space Force, I guess it was, Air, I don't know, does she have to choose between Air Force, Space Force, Marines? I don't know what's in the. Yeah, I, I know it, it, it's kind of it's kind of crazy. I, I guess so. The the Marine Corps in the United States is under the Department of the Navy, so you can go to the Naval Academy and graduate and become an officer in the Marine Corps or in the Navy. When when our daughter graduated, she went into the Air Force. She went to tech school, and that's when the Space Force became a thing, became you know a branch, and so. She decommissioned from the Air Force and commissioned into the Space Force. So it, it, the Space Force is kind of like the Marine Corps of the Air Force. It's sort of a, a subset underneath uh, yeah. the Department of the Air Force. It's hmm. really, really cool. Okay. So, all right. So now, I guess, your wife has a new job. You're living in Houston. When did you, I guess, decide to switch into this motivational part of your life and and i know you speak and and uh, that's how you found us and we were really impressed with what you have to say and, and what you teach um yeah I, I, well thank you for that i i i really decided it when i got cancer we were we were living in houston i was i had a school security consulting business and i coached girls high school basketball and it was during basketball season that i had a a callus break open on the bottom of my left foot, right below my third toe. And initially didn't think much of it because as a coach, you're on your feet a lot. But after a few weeks of it not healing, I made an appointment to see a podiatrist, a foot doctor friend of mm -hmm. mine. And he took an x-ray and he said, Terry, I think you have a cyst in there and I can cut it out. And he did. And he showed mm -hmm. it to me, a little gelatin sack with some white fat in it, no dark spots, no blood, nothing that gave either one of us concern. But fortunately or unfortunately, he sent it off to pathology to have it looked at. And then two weeks later, I got a call from him. And as I mentioned, he was a friend of mine. And the more difficulty he was having explaining to me what was going on, the more frightened I was becoming mm. until finally he just laid it out for me. He said, Tara, I've been a doctor for 25 years. I have never seen the form of cancer that you have. You have a rare form of melanoma, which most people think of you know, too much exposure to the sun affects the melon, the pigment in our skin. You have this rare form that appears on the bottom of the feet or the palms of the hands, has nothing to do with sun exposure. And that started my 11 year journey. And during that, I, you know, I had all these things happen to me, amputations and surgeries and medication. And somebody was like, you know what, you ought to start telling your story. And, and I was very against it initially. I'm, I'm a pretty private individual. So when you start putting yourself out on social media and stuff like that, I mean, plus I'm old, I can barely turn my cell phone on in the morning. So, you know, doing this, I was like, God, I got a daughter that I can, Hey, hon, how do I do this? You know, like, thanks. You know, otherwise, I, you know, I'd be using a pigeon or, you know, something like that to carry messages back and forth. So, so that's kind of how it all started. Wow. Wow. And, and this book, it's new. When, when did, when did you come out with this book? Uh, Sustainable Excellence came out in 2020. So um, it's about three years old. It was a, it was a book that was really born out of 
two conversations that I had. One was with a former player that I had coached in high school who had moved to Colorado where my wife and I live with her fiance. And the four of us had dinner one night. And I remember saying to her after dinner that I was excited that she was living close and I could watch her find and live her purpose. She got real quiet for a while. And she looked at me and she said, well, coach, what do you think my purpose is? I said, I have absolutely no idea what your purpose is, but that's what your life should be about. You know, finding the reason you were put on the face of this earth, using your unique gifts and talents and living that reason. So that was one conversation. And then a young man reached out to me on social media in college. And he said, what do you think are the most important things that I should learn not to just be successful in my job or in business, but to be successful in life? And, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to give him that, you know, get up early, work hard, help others. You know, I didn't want to give him <laughs> that stuff because it's not that it's not important. It, it is very important. But I wanted to see if I could go deeper with him. So I spent some time and, you know, was taking notes and sort of had these 10 thoughts, these 10 ideas, these 10 principles. And so I sent them to him. And then I stepped back and I was like, well, I got a life story that fits underneath that principle. Or I know somebody whose life emulates this principle. So literally during the three to four month period where I was healing after I had my leg amputated, I sat down at the computer every day and I built stories and they're real stories about real people underneath each of the principles. And that's how the book came to be. Wow. That's amazing. And I'd like to dive into what an uncommon and extraordinary life uh, means to you. So I guess, Every uncommon and extraordinary is the same, or someone has an uncommon life and they have an extraordinary life. Kind of yeah, how you break I, I how it's... you break down how you break down that that interesting statement I've never ever heard before, um, and how you how that I guess how you yeah, describe. That, that, that's a great question, and I I think we're all born to lead this uncommon, you know, n not to be part of the group, but but to sort of. You know, and this is going to sound sort of contrary to what we we're talking about before about what you learn, you know, as being part of a team. But, you know, you have unique gifts and talents. We all do. And and I, I also have a very, very deep faith. Um, and so, you know, if you think about things like there's never been another human being in the history of the world that's like you, and there never will be another human being in the history of the world like you. So if, if you believe that, and I do, I, you know, I mean, sometimes I think the nuances are a little, a little fuzzy, but I, I honestly believe that that God made us all unique in, in some way or some form. But people don't explore that. They don't find what makes you uncommon and not just uncommon, but extraordinary, amazing. You know, a, the, the ability to do the things that we've done as, as, a, as a human race, as a population I just, I think back on my, I mean, my grandmother was born in 1900 and, you know, she died in the 1980s. I think of all the things she saw in her life, you know, the automobile, the, you know, the airplane, the, you know, vaccines. The and, cell and phone these, for all the kids out there. Exactly. You know, cell phone. I mean, just things that, I mean, she never learned to drive. And, you know, I, it was kind of, neither, neither one of her or her husband, my other, my grandfather learned to drive. So, I mean, just different things in life that that make it extraordinary. And so I, I was like, I think we're all deserve. We all are destined if we want, if we take the time. It's not something that's, okay, here, you're, you're uncommon and extraordinary. Good luck. I mm. think you got to work at it. I think you've got to test yourself. You've got to 
be tried, you know, test your mettle, see what kind of person you are. Fail often. That's one of the chapters in the book is about the importance of failing and of failing often, especially when you're young. Because so many people have talked to me about, you know, this person's a great doctor, a great lawyer, a great athlete, a great singer, whatever. And they think somehow that person never failed. You know, that all of a sudden, you know, you're Taylor Swift. There you are. You're, you're on the main stage mm. and everything's great. But the road to success is paved with failure. I think of my own daughter. You know, what people saw was her playing on the basketball court at the Air Force Academy. What they didn't see was all the hours in the summer that she would be in a hot, sweaty, humid gym, putting up thousands and thousands and thousands of shots to allow her the opportunity to do that. There's a, I'll end with this. There's a football player here in the United States, Hall of Famer by the name of Jerry Rice, who used to say, today I will do what others won't so that tomorrow I can do what others can't. And and I love that because it's like, you know, I believe you're, you're uncommon and you're extraordinary, but do you want to flesh that out? Do you want to, you know, make that, figure that out and how that applies to you? Because it applies to you differently than it applies to me. But I think so many people never, never spend any time trying to figure it out. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I got to jump on that with the failure because it's so true. First of all, you mentioned you know Michael Jordan before. I think he's famous for that as well. Yeah, I think he was cut from his high school team or something. Pretty famous. Uh, then he went on to become Michael Jordan. I was actually listening to a podcast uh, this week with um, Guy Raz. has a very, very good podcast. He had uh, uh, Rain Wilson, the guy who plays D- Dwight Schrute in The Office. I think okay. that's uh, that. That's uh, I think that's his name. Yeah, Rain Wilson. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah, he was yeah. right. That's his, so. That's what he was. He had said that very thing that you're saying, Terry. He said that before you know he became cast for this you know show, The Office. He performed in Broadway, and he said he performed the first performance he ever did was the worst performance he ever had. He failed miserably, and he was just saying how much it made him. Like it just made him the actor that he is today. And but for that, he wouldn't have been able to to succeed. And I wanted to add for for our audience as well, um, I wouldn't call it failure, but I think tied to, actually, I'll ask it as a question. Would you tie the idea of Terry? Because, you know, as you mentioned, your cancer and your battles with that, um, you know, obviously I I, I can't imagine, but, uh, you know, you look and sound amazing, but I'm I'm sure it's a, it's a tremendous uh, adversity that you're, that you work through Um, and on a, you know, a different level, but for those of our audience that have been through divorce, which is an adversity as well, um, would you say that these things really shape you? It's not just failures. It's also the adversity that you that you experience. I think actually I, I jotted it down in my notes. That was one of the things I saw there. I think Ben sent it, or, or maybe you mentioned in the bio, Ben, about embracing pain, right? Is that one of the principles that you talk about? Can you can you elaborate a bit on that? Or Yeah, you know, can, can adversity teach you something? If you let it, yeah. Mm, but I, I think a lot it, of people like yeah. don't allow themselves to learn from it. I, I love the... The quote from Nelson Mandela, the former president of South Africa, who you know was in prison for like 27 years of his life, who said, I never lose. I either learn or I win. Hmm. So, you know, what can you can, can you you should be able to learn something from something as as horrific as divorce? You know, I mean, you know, two people who love each other in the beginning, somehow it falls apart. And, and now you're you're not together. And, but if you have children, you, you are tied together for the rest of your life. How, how can you learn from that? How can you, you know, and, and I, there's a, oh, I wish I could remember his name. There's a, there's a management consultant here 
in the United States, and he works with CEOs for companies. And trust me, I'll, I'll tie this together. Uh, he works for <laughs> CEOs, and he goes in and he's like, "Okay, what are your problems?" You know, and the CEO lists the problems, and the guy will say, "Okay, what's your role in those problems?" And invariably, the person will be like, well, my senior vice president of production is, no, 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 no. I'm not asking you what somebody else's role in it. I want to know what your role in this problem is. And, and we tend to, you know, play it off because we don't like feeling, you know, I, did I fail? I failed in a relationship where we produce children and things like that. No, no. But, you know, what what's your role in it? And that's a hard, deep, sometimes long pit that we need to figure out. You know, I, I, nobody wins in a divorce. I'm, I'm totally convinced of that. Nobody wins in a divorce. Sometimes it's necessary, but a lot of times, and again, uh, this is my opinion, we give up way too early. You know, that we think that, you know, it's gotta be all love and hugs and kisses and we're making love all the time and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, that, that's that's not what marriage is. You know, marriage is hard. Marriage is ugly. Marriage is is things that are different. And, and we don't like that. So we, we oh, I'm going to give up on you. I'm going to go see if the grass is greener on the other side. The, the grass isn't greener on the other side, at least in my opinion. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, no, it really, it really does. Yeah. Very eloquently said. Yeah. Yeah. I, don't know I, actually, but, <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually just saw uh, uh, one of my, uh, the YouTubers that I follow, uh, Casey Neistat put out a video with his wife, uh, how not to get divorced. And it's like 10 tips of how not to get divorced. And one of them was life is short. Re meaning always remember that life is short. And are you really going to care if he put the toothpaste back in the, in the, in the tube when you're on your deathbed and just yeah. having that in your mind, uh, I thought was, was a very, you know, easy way to understand it. So the same thing with failing, you know, life, life is short. Also, Mark Zuckerberg said, you know, I, the way we operate the company is push out things fast and fix them as we go. And most, a lot of people just kind of wait and say, oh, I'm going to do it when this, I'm going to do it when that, or when we get this, then that's when we'll work on our marriage. That's when we'll go to therapy. So remembering that life is short and failing is okay. will change your outlook on a whole lot of things. Uh, yeah, it, it really will. And, and I always I, I did a podcast with a woman who's a um, a flight surgeon for NASA. And, and she was we were talking afterwards and she's, you know, my husband and I have all these issues and stuff like that. And and I, I, she's like, I don't know how to handle this. I said, well, well, when you sit down and talk about these issues, sit down and hold hands because it's a whole lot harder to be pissed off at somebody and, you know, have all that, you know, vile and, and you know, if you're if you're touching somebody, if you're holding hands with them. You know, and she was, I talked to her a couple of weeks ago and she's like, you know, that works. I'm like, okay, I know I'm stupid, but you know, I know some things that work, you know, and, and it was just kind of like that connection, you know, that just when you argue, hold hands, it, it's, it's a much different argument than if you can be on the other side of the room and yelling at the person and, and, and all that. And, you know, I think about how many domestic violence runs I went on as a police officer where, you know, the person was drunk and they're, you know, and I'm like, Oh my God, you guys, you know, you almost, you, you almost have to play counselor. It's like, do you remember when you got married? Remember how in love you were? What mm. changed? Mm. What can you change now in both of yourselves? You, you know, it's, it's always the other person's fault. It's never our fault. 
But, mm. you know, a, a wise person will realize, no, in a divorce, everybody's at fault. You know, it's the husband, it's the wife. It's, it, it doesn't matter. You know, it's not one person's fault. You know, the person cheated on me, it's her fault. Why did she cheat on you? Because you weren't giving, paying her any attention. She didn't feel love. She didn't feel part of the relationship. She wasn't making the decisions. I mean, you can go down whatever road you want to go down, but it's, you realize, you know, it's kind of, you know, in, in the Christian faith, when you get married, it's, you know, the two become one. Yeah, well, obviously when you're divorcing there, that's not the case. You you got to understand that one is, it's uh, it's ugly sometimes. Marriage is ugly. I mean, I, my wife and I have been married for 30 years. 11 of those years have been dealing with cancer with me. Mm. Do you think she signed up for that? What, you know, mm. I mean, I, I begged her many times to put me in a, put me in a nursing home, put me in a facility. That way you can kind of get on with your life, but she won't do it. And I'm really kind of glad she hasn't because I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her. Mm. Wow. Beautiful. Yeah. Speaking about that, that role question, uh, you know, what role do you play in it? So my daughter started uh, going to see a coach and uh, she's having like issues with school. And I met with the coach and she's basically said, when I ask her what's going on, so she'll say, this one isn't, this teacher isn't doing that. And this girl in my class isn't doing that. And she's like, well, what I'm trying to work on her with now is what is your responsibility in that? And, you know, for, I just, there's a lot of things nowadays because, you know, like I was listening to her on leaving like a WhatsApp message for her friend. So they don't call. A lot of these kids don't have call conversations. Like I'm a phone guy. Yoel can tell you, I'll just pick up the phone (laughs) and I will call and he'll be uh, sending me voice notes. And I hate them because Mm -hmm. I was listening to this voice note that she was leaving her friend. It was like very one-sided. And if you're not having like that live face-to-face and seeing the emotions on the other person and, and being able to feed off of those, it's more of like, I'm sending something to you, you're sending it back to me, and it and it, it's missing a piece. Like that connection, you know, that you're talking about is just totally missing from from in my mind, like kids today. There's like a total disconnect from all of that, and COVID didn't help. Uh, so, you know, I'm watching it and, you know, trying to coach her through it, but she doesn't even know what she doesn't know. Um, it's very tricky at, at this moment. It, it, it is. And, you know, I, I think back when I was a negotiator, they gave us a formula that was uh, 738.55. And it had to do with how we communicate with, e- with each other. So 70, 7% of the message is the words that you use. 38% of the message is the tone of voice that you use with mm. those words. And then 55% of it is your body language and facial expressions. Wow. And if you think about what we did as negotiators, you know, I mean, 99% of what we did as police officers was face to face with another human being. So you could take those visual clues. You know, if I was talking to you and, you know, you're kind of looking around like maybe he's going to run or wants to run or, Mm. you know, if you're balling up your fist, maybe you want to fight. And I can see that and I can do what's appropriate. I can sit you down. I can handcuff you. I can put you in my car, whatever was appropriate. And as negotiators, we were not face to face with the, you know, the person we were negotiating with. So that 55%, that body language, you know, I could say something and I couldn't see the person be like, oh my God, what an idiot, He, you know, <laughs> for him saying that. I didn't have that. I didn't have that feedback. Yeah. 
And if you realize that, if you realize how important you're, you know, if I'm talking to you guys and I got, you know, my arms crossed across my chest, you know, closed body language and things like that, or I'm playing on my phone while you're talking, <laughs> I was like, well, he doesn't care what I'm saying because he's, you know, you see those things, but we didn't have that as negotiators. So you're absolutely right. I mean, getting kids or getting people to understand how we communicate, it's not what we say, it's what our body's doing when we're saying it. Hmm. Yeah, you know, living in a in a foreign country where the native language is not English. So when we used to go with, with my ex to school meetings, I didn't really speak. My job was just to see everyone and read their body language and report to her after the meeting. Because I have a very <laughs> high EQ and I, I can I can do that. So I'd be like, this one didn't like what you were saying. This one thought it was okay. This one was totally against you. Um, and that was my job in the, in the, in the meeting. Um, and then when I wish you'd be a great jury consultant, you know, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Um, and, uh, and when, when I used to work with, uh, kids, uh, in a youth group, so we used to, I used to coach them on making phone calls, like cold calls to, Hey, come to our event, come to our event. And the kids in the beginning would be like, hi, how are you? Would you like to come to our event? And I tell them you need to smile because they actually hear it on the other end. Yep. And once they learn that, the numbers quadrupled. And it's so important that people, you know, even through the phone and they don't even see you, they can feel it and they can hear it in your voice and they'll react to it. Um, so, yeah, you know, the COVID, yeah. So COVID and, and, the, and the masking up and, and missing yeah. people's faces, I, I feel like some kids are, are just lost because they don't know what to do with it. Well, I get that not a lot in the United States anymore, but people would, you know, well, you know, how can I be successful as a police officer? And I used to tell them, put your devices down, go out on the street, talk to the homeless guy, you know, go up to the penthouse and talk to that person. Because if you can talk to people, not text them, not, you know, send them an emoji, but if you can talk to people, you'll be good in law enforcement. If you can't, you're going to be frustrated and miserable and probably is not the job for you. But all these kids today, they, I mean, our, our daughter and her husband, you know, they spent, I don't know, I can't remember, like a year and a half apart. They were in different bases wow. and things like that. And and I remember our daughter was at a base here in Colorado near my wife and I. So she was living with us. We would have dinner. It's like, is Brad having dinner with us? Yeah, he's having dinner. They, she would put the, the laptop on the table <laughs> while we were eating dinner, open it up, and he'd be there and we'd be, eating, you know, but that's. That's hilarious technology allowed them to communicate that way, allowed them to stay in touch. And and now they're both deployed. So they're in two opposite wow. parts of the world right now as well. And, and that's how they communicate. You know, they open the computer and spend some time, you know, just doing what they do, but in the quote unquote presence of somebody else. We, I didn't have that when I was growing up. That, that would have been a whole different ball of wax yeah. if COVID would have hit when I was a kid. Mm. Yeah, that's for sure. So uh, this is the Two Dads to Quit podcast. So we do like to ask our guests to leave some Two Dads to Quit moment, a moment where you felt the proudest of your your daughter. And and when you think about it, you just light up. Uh, if you could share one of those stories with us, we'd really enjoy it. Well, I, I think the most, you know, I, I, I sort of already gave you the story about how, you know, when she was diagnosed in middle school with all these learning issues and deficits and, and work incredibly hard with a learning specialist, but, you know, she had to put in the time, she had to do the work and, and to have her walk across the stage at the Air Force Academy to get her diploma 
and to shake hands with the president of the United States was, I mean, I, I, I get goosebumps still thinking about it, you know, how, you know, and people used to say to us, Oh, you know, congratulations. I'm like, she did all the heavy lifting, you know, (laughs) we were there to support her and and things like that. Absolutely. But it was, I, I think my wife would tell you the same thing. It was the proudest moment of our lives. It was like, yeah, we gave her, we set her up to be successful in life. Now it's up to her to kind of pick up the ball and advance it forward. And uh, the last thing we'd like to leave our audience with is some tips or advice that you would have for any, you know, we have 20 to 30% of our audience. uh, We actually hit 28% this week of female listeners uh, of our audience. And uh, you know, something that, you would give them somebody who's thinking about divorce. A lot of, you know, women listen to hear the guy side, uh, people that are thinking about getting divorced. Uh, I know several people that, you know, gone through rough patches and I've just sent them the, the episodes just to listen to um, just advice to, you know, if you're thinking about it or you're, you're, you're on the fence or, you know, you've given some really good advice uh, so far, but I, I, I feel like there's some more nuggets in that in your uh, years of wisdom. I, I guess I would say, you know, first of all, understand what your role in in this is. It's, you know, it's it's not the, your spouse's issue. You know, it's your issue as well. I, I'd say the grass is not greener on the other side. I would say that nobody wins in divorce. But let, let me let me tell you a quick story that I, I think sort of is an overarching um, lesson that we can learn from from this, whether it's divorce or, or anything in life. I, I had a nurse recently ask me what it was like to have my foot amputated and to have my leg amputated. And I told her it, it hasn't been easy. I'm, I'm six foot eight inches tall. So learning to walk again, falling is not an option. You get hurt from this height, you know, if you fall. So mm. falling is not an option. But what I told her was cancer can take all my physical faculties. But cancer can't touch my mind, it can't touch my heart, and it can't touch my soul. And that's who I am. That's who you are. That's who everybody who's listening to us is. So I'm not telling you to to work on the physical stuff. You know, I'm not telling you to to exercise and and eat right and get enough sleep and reduce stress. But what I am suggesting is maybe spend a little time each day working on who you really are, your heart, your mind, and your soul. This body's going to die. It's going to decay. It's going to go away. But who you are, you know, the essence of who you are, your heart, your mind and your soul, that's eternal. That that goes on forever. So maybe spend a little more time working on that every day and see if maybe that helps in improving the relationship that you have with your spouse. Amazing. That's fantastic. Wow. Well, thank you, Powerful. Terry. This, is, this has been amazing. And thank and you, Terry. Have, wow. And we wish you only the best and uh, and only only good things and we really appreciate your time and reaching out to us uh this has been amazing um i would like to thank all of our listeners this has been the two dad to quit podcast and we will see you next week this podcast provides a platform for our guests to express their own personal views and opinions some or all of these views and opinions may not be shared by ben and or yo thank you for listening to the two dad to quit podcast Available to dadtoquit.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode.